Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. I want to learn more about General Motors' announcement today that it was investing $1 billion in a U.S. investment plan spending on models and plants that have long been in the works. I want to bring in David Welch, Detroit Bureau Chief. My first question for you, David, is how much of this plan was already in the works and how much of this is new as a result of uh, some of the cajoling from President-elect Trump's team? It looks like most of it, if not all of it, the only part that we didn't really know about or that, that wouldn't have been part of their initial uh, capital expenditures plan might be the uh, the axle jobs coming back from Mexico. But even there, uh, GM shifts things around all the time uh, based on you know, demand for vehicles uh, and, and, and that kind of thing. You know, the, the white collar jobs, which is the bulk of this, uh, that's 5,000 workers who will be doing R&D, who will be doing advanced development work on autonomous vehicles and also some people who are working for GM Financial, which is the lending unit. Uh, none of that would have been in Mexico anyway, of course. But you know, those are areas that GM has been growing and adding more people. They had announced a while ago they were expanding their uh, technical center north of Detroit. So a lot of that stuff was already in the works. Um, factories, too. Uh, down in Mexico, they, they do make a lot of small cars and things that are already low margin because the wages are cheaper. And that's the only way you can even have a hope of making money on compact cars. As the market shifts away from that stuff and they're building more SUVs to meet demand, that stuff will naturally require investment in the U.S. Well, David, you know, we got a chance to spend some time with you at the uh, North American International Auto Show at Cobo Hall in, in Detroit. And I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of a, uh, a look into the detail of the auto industry right now, what with uh, the emissions scandal that plagues not only uh, VW's balance sheet, but uh, certainly vexes Sergio Marchione of uh, Fiat Chrysler. What are the, the big themes right now that you need that you recommend people watch? Well, regulation is a big part of it, and, and it's been a really busy few weeks in the auto industry for a couple of reasons. You have the Obama administration leaving, and on their way out, they're trying to really make sure that things like clean air regulations uh, are, are, are really adhered to. So they, they both the Justice Department and the EPA really handled handed Volkswagen some really big fines and some indictments. They really went after them, and they're going after... Fiat Chrysler to make sure that that the devices they had in their cars were not cheating. They haven't said they're cheat devices yet. There there are eight devices that change the emissions performance of the vehicle under certain conditions. All cars have those. Those are legal. You have to tell the government they're there, and they didn't do that. So that is... that, that would warrant a penalty, even if they are fine. They, they have to be disclosed. Now, if it turns out that they were done to cheat emissions tests, which is something Sergio Marchione, the CEO, has denied, then uh, th- then the fines could get really big, uh, like they were with Volkswagen. But at the moment, it, it's not really uh, – they haven't proven that that's the situation. There. You know, David, just uh, turning back to GM, I, I'm wondering you know, how much of this is a public relations stunt or how much of this would have been done – in the past with a company uh, extolling its its upcoming ex- expenditure plan uh, in a release like this, 
is it just the media? Is it us that is making a bigger deal about this because we're putting it into our uh, our pattern of trying to respond to President-elect Trump? Or has there been a material shift in approach uh, to how some of these car companies communicate? I think a lot of it is the former. General Motors spends $9 billion a year in capital expenditures, and that's new cars that are coming to market in the next few years, and that's tooling up the factories to make those new cars. Every time you have a new car, you've got a new chassis line, a new uh, paint shop, a new line for the body panels, new stampings for those bodies, and all that requires a lot of capital investment, and they do it to the tune of $9 billion a year. Some of the vehicles they're coming out with in the next few years are sport utility vehicles that they didn't previously have. So, between, for example, between now and 2020, Cadillac is supposed to get three new SUVs that they don't have now. Why? Because Cadillac is behind in luxury crossover SUVs, which is the sweet spot of the luxury market. They have one, Audi, BMW, and uh, Mercedes have two, three, or four in their lineup. So GM is just catching up. You're going to need factories to make those. So that's going to be a big part of the investment right there. So all that stuff was in the works. So you're talking $9 billion a year between now and 2020, $1 billion uh, that they're announcing, and the you know 1,500 jobs uh, that would assemble those. And a lot of that is retained jobs, which means uh, that had they not put a vehicle in that existing factory, they would have laid those people off. But instead, they're giving them something to do, so they'll keep those jobs. So a lot of it is stuff that would have already happened. The investment in autonomous vehicles and R&D would have already happened, and they have already stated that they want to grow their lending business to make more car loans. That already that would have happened as well. The only thing that might have happened is the 450 jobs. These are people making axles coming back from Mexico to the U.S. So that may have stayed down there. So uh, there's that. But a lot of this is just, uh, and they've told me this, moving forward, the announcements they would have made, uh, basically under pressure from Trump and in order to play nice with them. Remember, the automakers have a lot of stuff they want out of the Trump administration, which is maybe a little bit more uh, relaxation on the fuel economy standards right. and uh, also uh, lower corporate tax rates. There are a lot of things they'd like that the Obama administration didn't want to do. We're going to leave that for another time. I want to thank you very much, David. David Welch is our Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. make sense of some of the moves in the pound following uh, Prime Minister Theresa May's comments to diplomats about how uh, Britain plans to break away from the European Union. Uh, For somebody with a lot more insight than I can bring for this is Rob Hutton, UK government and politics reporter for Bloomberg, who is joining us now. Rob, thank you so much. So uh, what is the main takeaway uh, from the speech so far? Well, the main takeaway is that she does actually have a plan. And Uh, I think if you'd asked me this morning, is she going to say very much? I'd have said, I'm not sure she is, you know. Uh, But we did get, we got clarity on a number of things. We got clarity she wants to take Britain out of the European European Union single market, all the way out. Um, we got Wait, clarity. Just before you continue Sorry. with that, so so what's the significance of that? Well, that is the basis on which uh, I in Britain can sell something to Germany uh, in, on exactly the same rules that somebody in Germany can sell to somebody in Germany. Okay, uh, so she wants so, a complete break from that. And now that's fantastically important for manufacturers. So you can build a car in Britain and sell it all the way across Europe with uh, with exactly the same regulations. Uh, and she Does wants- she want to replace it with something else? Well, what she wants to do is she wants to. She says 
she said she wanted to keep access to the customs union. This is a slightly tricky language. She wants to take Britain out of the customs union, which sort of underpins that, and uh, but still but still continue trading within it. And at that point, you then start to get into what she didn't say. There are interesting questions about, well, let's say I build a car in Britain and then I want to sell it to Germany, but we have a regulatory dispute. Where are we going to resolve that? And let's say that Germany changes its car regulations, or the, the, rather the European Union changes its car regulations. Uh, Britain's no longer bound by those, but effectively we kind of still are because if we want to sell cars here and there. So, so Well, you already have that going on with Fiat and VW because of emissions. Well, that's uh, yeah, and, you know, and who who actually you know takes over as the regulator? But in in just to focus on Theresa May, for example, right. I'm trying to understand that the it says that the prime minister has a 12 point Brexit plan. Uh, is there any and anything other than putting it to a vote uh, at Parliament? Is what else do we need? What else is the most important thing that we need? The, to, the, the most important thing is is leaving the single market. The second most important thing is is keeping some kind of uh, of customs union access. That's her compromise. Uh, the vote to Parliament, I think, is slightly a red herring. I've got to say, and if if that's what people are buying the pound on the back of, then they should think about that, because basically what that means is in two years' time, members of Parliament are asked, "Do you want whatever deal it is I've got, or do you want to leave the European Union with no deal at all?" So so. Let's just undo all of this and not leave is unlikely to be on the table. Well, the, cho- the choice is going to be this deal, which you may not like, or no deal. I'm struggling to understand. I mean, people talk about hard Brexit versus a soft Brexit. Based on what you initially said, it seems like that would be a hard Brexit. This is a pretty hard Brexit, yes. So so the soft, the, the people who wanted something softer... Uh, are all slightly stunned today, I think, because uh, because there's 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 no concessions to them at all. There was a nice bit in the in the speech where the prime minister said that we all had to come together and, and sort of unite, however we voted in the referendum. But to be honest, there's not very much for people who voted to stay to re- unite around in this speech. I guess it's difficult to figure out in some quarters whether there's a hard-boiled egg or a soft-boiled egg. This is quite a hard-boiled egg. But but you say it's a hard-boiled egg, and yet you see that big rise in the value of the pound. Well, Rob, that's what I wanted to expand on, because uh, why, is, as you said, is this just a red red herring and someone's clawing at something? And Because uh, I wonder, is is President-elect Donald Trump in some way uh, connected to, uh, well, it, it, I mean, you know, there may be there may be other reasons and other things are going on. We had higher than expected expected inflation this morning, so the pound was already on its way up uh, before the speech began. The pound, she, the pound did definitely rise when she she talked about a vote. And on the past, the pound has risen on things that made Brexit look less likely. And I, I, I mean, we're, we're trying very hard to. to to tell people, don't don't count on that vote. Don't sift the, the sand for That's, a diamond, huh? You know that 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 vote is highly unlikely to reverse the decision. And in fact, when we tried, when when somebody asked the prime minister, and when we've asked her office, well, come on, what happens if the vote goes the other way? They just laugh and say the vote won't go the other way, and they're right. Who, you know, how bad would a deal have to be for you to decide? That I know that's what David Cameron said, on, didn't he? On, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We gotta, well, that's true. We got to leave it there. Rob Hutton, <laughs> UK government and politics reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from London.
Uh, I want to bring in Joe Carroll, who covers the oil industry for us at Bloomberg, uh, to give a little bit more color around this ExxonMobil purchase of uh, of shale land. They based, they paid $5.6 billion in shares uh, for this Permian Basin uh, land. And Joe, I want to start with, was this an expected acquisition of Exxon's? Well, we've known Exxon is looking around uh, this this region in, in Texas and New Mexico called the Permian Basin. It's the biggest U.S. oil field um, uh, for, for 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 quite a while. We, we didn't expect a, a deal this gigantic. For Exxon, this is the biggest deal since they bought XTO, and that was their first foray into into North American shale, and that was back in 2010. Um, not only are they paying 5.6 billion in shares, if the resource is as rich as um, you know, as their geologists expect it to turn out to be, they'll pay another billion in cash over the next 15 years. I got to imagine that somehow we're going to work in former chief executive of ExxonMobil Rex Tillerson into the conversation. Yeah, they haven't told us, but it sure appears almost certain that this was a transaction that began before he left January 1st. These things just don't come together that quickly. Well, do you think that it was expedited to uh, come out before Rex Tillerson took the role of Secretary of State under President-elect Trump? No, I don't think they expedited. I think once once uh, the company cut ties with him, um, they cut ties with him. So um, right now I'm looking at Exxon shares. They're up a bit. Uh, but what could this do for Exxon? I mean, how much better of a position does this put them in potentially? This is a pretty, even though for Exxon, $5.5 billion doesn't sound like a lot of money. This gives them 20 Pocket years change. of drilling. Yeah, for, 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 you know, for a company with more than $200 billion in annual sales. That said, it, it, it's, it, it's at least 20 years of drilling. It's an enormous amount of oil. It's 300-something billion dollars worth of oil locked in the ground there. Uh, it's pretty low risk because, because it's a Permian. Folks have been drilling out there for, for almost a century. Well, um, it, it's interesting to me because it, it strikes me that this is some of the consolidation that a lot of oil analysts have been waiting for. People said that because of the uh, drop in oil prices that we have to see this consolidation by the biggest oil companies. Do you expect there to be more announcements like this from Exxon's rivals? From everybody, you know, yesterday was the, was the Clayton Williams Noble deal um, that that Dave Wilson just referenced, and that's in the same area. That's in this uh, Delaware Basin, which is a sub region region of, of the Permian there, on the Texas New Mexico border. It's the hottest uh, M and A play in oil anywhere in the world. Um, I think it attracted a quarter of about twenty five percent of of all the oil M and A dollars in twenty sixteen. That's that's from, according to Wood McKenzie. Um, and yeah, of course, this is just going to keep steam rolling on. At what point does the price just become too expensive? Because if you've got ample supply in a domestic market, then you face the prospect of having more supply than you need. You mean you're talking about the price of oil? Yeah. As far as Exxon goes, they're confident they'll they'll get double digit returns as low you know with oil as low as forty dollars um, a barrel. Uh, I believe Noble said the same thing yesterday. Right. So forty dollars is the break point for when you flip the switch to get the shale out, the shale oil out. Well, forty dollars is the break point where you're making you know fifteen, twenty, thirty percent return. It, it can certainly go lower than that. Joe, has it gotten cheaper to extricate oil from shale drilling? What's happened is they've, they, yeah, it, 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 on a per unit basis, sure, because what they've done is they just drill these sideways wells for, for a mile, for two miles now. Um, it costs more to drill each one of those wells, but the amount of oil that comes gushing out is so much more massive 
that uh, yeah, your per unit costs are a lot lower. Because that was one of the big obstacles, right? In the U.S., it's a lot more expensive to extricate oil than it is, for example, in Saudi Arabia or in Iran, correct? Correct. Um, so going forward, is could any regulations uh, actually help Exxon access more of the land that they just purchased? Could that have played into this at all or not really? You know, uh, unlike the rest of the world, in the United States, almost everything that gets drilled for oil and gas is, is privately owned. Uh, you know, it's not like working in Canada or the U.K. or really anywhere else in the world where the government or the crown uh, owns the resource. Uh, so, so and, and, and given the fact that most of the regulation comes at the state level, I, I don't see a huge impact uh, from, from, from the federal situation. Well, Joe, tell us about potential price changes. Uh, $53, $52 a barrel. The OPEC meeting is in May. You've got this confluence of shale oil plus a new president, President-elect Donald Trump. Uh, what do you see in the next 90 days? In the next 90 days, I think you continue to see more deals in the Permian, more M&A, um, as long as these companies can uh, can lock in prices by by you know w- with forward hedges, uh, they're just gonna they're gonna drill as much as they can, uh, you know, and and make their returns. Um, I think it was the Saudis was it yesterday or the day before said they don't expect uh, expect the cuts the OPEC cuts to last through June. Correct. Um, so 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 we I think we'll really see see an impact there. All right, I have a feeling you're going to be very busy, and we thank you for it. Uh, Joe Carroll is uh, Energy America's reporter for Bloomberg, giving us uh, some perspective and additional information about uh, ExxonMobil paying $5.6 billion to expand its acreage in uh, western Texas. That's right. here to tell us about some innovation when it comes perhaps to your portfolio, but it might also include some healthcare stocks, is Mike Bailey. He is uh, the uh, chief financial officer, I beg your pardon, the CFA and director of research at uh, FBB Capital Markets. Hey, hey Mike Bailey, I'm sorry. I, I thought you got a new title there, but you didn't. Uh, good morning, Pam. Good morning, uh, Lisa. Thanks for having me. All right. Yeah, so you, I, I, you, I thought I was going to get some kind of surprise news there. Uh, no, the no, no. No more surprise. We got enough people doing surprise news. It's a, uh, no. Okay. Uh, uh, you're, you're managing almost a billion uh, at FBB Capital. Uh, what are you telling your, your client base right now to do or not do? Well, I think uh, as we look at the, the very short term, and, and ideally we do. Yeah, next over- three months. Sure. So I think we are a bit concerned here. Um, you know, I think we're, we've got the, uh, the Trump uh, inauguration coming up here in a few days. Uh, I, I think uh, 2017 will probably be a, a good year, maybe not quite as good as yeah, last but what year. Are, what are you concerned about? Yeah, I think, uh, so if we want to kind of create a, a new word here, people love Brexit and flash crash and such. So Trump's execution uh, doesn't quite roll off the tongue, but I think we're getting to a phase where investors expect Trump to execute, and we're getting, you know, the rubber's about to hit the road here Friday. Uh, and I think our concerns are basically uh, investors are hoping that Trump is going to act on some of his promises, you know, whether that's uh, lower taxes, whether that's uh, juicing up the economy. Um, and if that doesn't happen, or if it happens later than investors expect, uh, you're going to see some downside. So I think for us, um, there's a little bit more hope in the market right now than what you might expect to see in the very short term. So, uh, you know, also we sort of haven't seen much volatility at all, uh, really, uh, since, you know, the election, actually. So I think 
putting some of those pieces together, we wouldn't be surprised to see a little bit of downside you know, later this week, early next week. And then I think investors will, will catch their breath. You will see the new administration start to roll out some policies. And I think that some of those expectations will get realized as we head towards uh, the later latter part of the year. Mike, I thought that it was interesting that you said that you think that there's roughly 15% upside and 5% mm-hmm. downside for the year, sort of uh, to your point that in the near term, perhaps downside, but over the longer term upside. I thought it was also interesting that you mentioned uh, industrials and healthcare mm-hmm. as all weather sectors, particularly healthcare. This was interesting to me because we've seen a a lot of volatility in biopharmaceutical stocks and as, as well as uh, hospital shares on the back of uh, Trump's comments. So why is this such a stalwart industry? You know, I think uh, when we look at uh, healthcare, and I am a bit biased. I used to be a healthcare analyst, so I've spent a lot of time looking at it. Um, I do think think there are a lot of spaces within healthcare where where you can do well over a number of years, uh, and it may not necessarily be you know the big pharma, the big biotech that folks think about as kind of the headlines. Uh, you know, maybe it's uh, services, maybe it's a managed care insurance stock, maybe it's a mid cap medical device stock. Uh, but, but there are some companies that, uh, in our view, are changing and, and growing pretty meaningfully over a number of years, uh, and they've got you know, they're diversified. So if the U.S. is down one year, you know, maybe they'll get helped uh, internationally the, the next year. Um, so there are some spaces we like. However, as you mentioned, there are certainly some areas that had a great bull run over two, three, four years, and that kind of came to a screeching halt. So we are, we're awfully cautious of some of those spaces where, you know, whether it's Trump's, you know, drug pricing tweets, things like that, uh, that where you can get in trouble with some of these companies. Right. So we're trying to look, uh, look across the whole space and find some pretty interesting names that are uh, growing nicely. Are you finding any opportunities outside of just the broadly traded shares? Uh, just in terms of sort of the traditional U.S. pharmaceutical stocks or mm-hmm. looking uh, at other kinds of healthcare companies? Or just, you know, other assets of the healthcare companies. I mean, are stocks the best way in? Yeah, good, good point. So, I mean, uh, as a sort of generalist uh, investment firm, we do equities, we do fixed income, preferred, things like that. So we, we look across uh, the, the capital structure. Um, in general, for healthcare, I think we tend to favor more on the equity side, but we certainly own plenty of uh, corporate debt uh, for, for uh, healthcare companies. Um, I think, though, uh, looking at, at healthcare in particular, you, you do get some nice yields. So I think that it is a space, if you do own it, if you're overweight, you can certainly get some decent yield, and maybe you don't have to be overweight uh, bonds, for example, within healthcare. Uh, but there's some, certainly some ways to play it. Uh, on the preferred side, for example, not quite as many healthcare names uh, available there, but certainly a handful to choose from. Hey, Mike, what's been the best and worst call that you've, uh, that you've made over, let's say, the last 12 months? Uh, so uh, we can either talk about it within healthcare or just broadly. No, no, broadly, broadly. I want to know, like, for example, you know, were you a bond bull when when everyone you know tried to get out of the gate and then you got head faked out of that one and got you know bullish again? Yeah, I mean, so if we look, you know, across all markets, uh, I think one of the areas we did maybe a bit better. This goes back a little bit over a year. Uh, we were a bit cautious on high yield, uh, kind of heading into the um, energy junk bond meltdown in, in, in late uh, kind of uh, 2015, early 16. So we okay. were a bit so like a, a medium term call. Yeah, so I think that that was sort of the, the call there in high yield. I think from a, a negative, you know, I think we probably could have taken a look at our, our treasury exposure a, a bit differently <laughs> heading into the election. I think that's certainly a space where I think a lot of folks were, were caught off guard, and we were probably uh, there as well. But um, in general, I think we try to be a bit more nimble on the equity side uh, from the on the, the bond uh, from bond perspective. We tend to be a little bit more uh, patient, I think, and, and sort of realize that the bond market does move a bit more slowly compared to equities. Uh, but we do certainly uh, take a look 
look at, at each asset class out there. Well, it's, I'm just wondering, do you have to add another metric now? And I, I'm serious here uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to tweet volume of a <laughs> no serious, of a particular company or a particular industry, because uh, we have a function on the Bloomberg that offers that. And I'm sure there are many others, but uh, you know, certainly not like this and integrated. But so we're able to see this in, right. as, and then you correlate it to you know news articles read and uh, so on. Do you think that that is a valid, you know, a research criteria that's going to have to be added into your perspective? Uh, you know, I think if we get the next four years looking like the last uh, couple of months, uh, that, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, I think certainly a lot of smart investors are using every data set they can. And if it turns out that tweets become highly correlated with, you know, a lot of, you know, blue chips or, or big companies out there, that's, that's certainly uh, relevant. Um, I think another point that, that we sort of think about is just volatility in general. So if you've got a lot of presidential tweets out there driving market volatility, that's something we want to take advantage of. Uh, well, a couple of things we're looking at is some of the, for example, online brokers or some of the exchanges out there, uh, I think are positioned pretty well to to, uh, to improve as you get more volatility. So that's one of the ways we're playing it without trying to, to get as uh, focused as you know, looking at individual companies that may or may not have a, a tweet coming out that could drive it uh, intraday. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Mike Bailey, CFA and Director of Research at FBB Capital Partners, talking about why over the long term, healthcare shares as well as industrials uh, will continue to do well. And Pam, I find that interesting because uh, particularly in the industrial sector, we saw such a rally last year at the end of the year uh, in response to some of the potential president-elect Trump policies. Um, We'll now see whether he can make good on that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.